Hello everyone. We are happy to continue with the third installment in a series of podcasts about digital humanities projects related to memory and archives in the Spanish-speaking world and also the Portuguese-speaking world in today. We have invited Leila Vieira, doctoral student in studies in the Portuguese-speaking world at the Ohio State University. She is also a presenter at the 2019 MSU Global Digital Humanities Symposium. Welcome, Leila, to Michigan State and to our podcast series on interdisciplinary collaborations. Thank you. Thank you for having me here. Yeah, we're very happy to have you here. And I attended your presentation, and I am very curious mm -hmm. about the work you presented. Selfishly curious, because it's also uh, one of my areas of specialization. So please, could you tell us briefly about the captive letters that you are working with? Where do you find them? And how did you find them in the archive of early modern Iberia? Yeah, so my access to the letters is only possible because of the project by uh, Rita Marquilhas from the mm -hmm. University of Lisbon in Portugal. The project is called PS Postscriptum. And what they did was they went to the archives to find letters that were uh, intercepted by the Inquisition and the civil and uh, church courts because those letters was, were used at the time as evidence for crimes that people might have committed or not. Uh, the goal of this project is to study the oral rhetoric of the time, like how did people talk informally yes. through the writer, through the letters. And the letters that they have span from the 15,000s to the 18,000s uh, in that project. Um, when it comes to who is writing these letters, there's a big range. There's people from the military, people from the clergy, and ordinary men like car carpenters and apothecaries and doctors. Um, from the captive letters that I worked with, there was only one woman. Oh, uh, yes. I was going to ask you yeah. about that. Yes. Because I tried to make, like, in my research to see how, uh, by gender, what differences there would be. Yes. But since there was only one woman, it was hard to make a claim because there wasn't much corpus there to work with. Mm -hmm. um, regarding the content of these captive letters, they're mostly writing to their families, usually wives or mothers or sons, to negotiate the terms of their releases. Mm -hmm. So for example, there is one letter that the father is writing his son and like, why didn't you send the money to uh, help in my release or uh, things like that. One letter that comes out of this general uh, theme is that a priest is writing to the Portugal ambassador of Rome. So I don't know more details about why they're writing each other, but it, it's an outlier of these familial relationships discussed in the letters. Yes, and these letters are written in both Spanish and Portuguese. Spanish and, yeah. And they are, in, uh, they are located in this archive in Lisbon, Portugal? Yeah. Uh, okay. They actually went to different archives, and when you look at the letters, they have the information of, of where they got it. Uh, the, this project, PS Postscriptum, they have the writing of the time, but they also have a modernized version okay. of the letters. Uh, and they have it transcribed. They also have the pictures, so there's a lot of ways that you can uh, approach uh, these letters. They also have linguistic information, like 
syntax and things like that because uh, Hita Marquilis is a linguist, so mm -hmm. that's what is behind. Uh, and I, I know uh, from your presentation that uh, you were looking at uh, letters from captives mm -hmm. and therefore you were able to identify 23 mm -hmm. that are part of your corpus. Okay. But uh, when we're talking about this uh, collection of letters, more or less, uh, Leila, how many do you think I ha or know. have been included in the postscriptum? There are portal? many, many letters. I would say more than 100, Okay, but I'm not sure. Yes. Yeah. Okay. There's more in Portuguese. Since it's a, a project that originated in the University of Lisbon in Portugal, so there's Surprisingly, there's more Portuguese stuff than Spanish stuff. Usually in academia, there's more stuff in Spanish than in Portuguese. Yes. I think this is an exception. Good. And tell us, how do you use tools from digital humanities to approach this material? And could you give us a couple of examples? Sure. So for this uh, research project, I use Voyant tools, which is a textual, digital textual analysis tool. So what you do is you dump your corpus in there. And it comes up a lot, of, and it gives as results a lot of visualizations and different ways that you can approach the text. Uh, for example, they have word clouds. They have words that are repeated and with which frequency they are repeated, uh, co-occurrences of a word, like, oh, these two are always together, or th these five words always appear uh, together. Uh, you have like context, like what words are before a word and after a term. And uh, what I like about this tool is that it gives you a step back from the text and you can have a more general and broad view uh, of this corpus. And uh, if you want to get more academic, this is what uh, Franco Moretti, Moretti talks about distant reading. So it's yeah. the opposite of close reading where you really go into the text and word by word, what does it mean? Mm -hmm. So with distant, distant reading, you go back and it shows you the patterns and the um, brother sense that the, your corpus uh, has. Uh, what I did in my research is divide the letters into first-person uh, first accounts yeah. and third-person accounts. And what we see, well, one interesting thing is that there's, in the uh, archives that I use, there's no letters in Spanish in the third person, mm -hmm. only in Portuguese. I don't know why that is. I, I'm not saying that these letters don't exist. Yes. It's just that they are not in the archives that I saw. But in the first person letters, you see that there's a lot more focus on the hardships of being a captive, like the long hours that they have to work and the physical strength that their uh, labor has. Uh, there's a lot of religiosity involved, like asking God for a strength to, there's a lot of uh, acknowledgement, like, Oh, if God put me in this position, I must accept it. Yeah. But also asking God to uh, get me out of here because yeah. I don't want to be a captive. Yeah. And there's a lot of mention to familial relationships also. So uh, aunts and uncles like say goodbye, say my send my regards to so and so. So there's a lot of that that you don't find in the third. Uh, personal letters. Okay. What challenges have you encountered in uh, using, applying digital uh, tools into the analysis of, of the letters? Yeah. Um, for this specific project, I think my main challenge is that my corpus is super small. So uh, I can't make any grandiose claims about the situation of captivity based on these uh, letters. Uh, 
and more regarding digital humanities, I think there's a learning curve when you're working with a new tool. I had never done anything uh, related to digital humanities before. So uh, it takes some tries until you understand what it's like. And like before I realized that I wanted to analyze the difference between first person and third person, I tried to make the difference between gender for, gender, for example, or centuries or class, but that didn't show me anything that I could, that I, that I felt like I could analyze more deeply. Mm -hmm. So I think that uh, uh, knowing that it takes time to, it's not like you read a text and then you have ideas about it. Mm -hmm. No, when you go into digital humanities, it, it's a longer process in the beginning. I think that once you're more used to it, it will be. Yeah, that brings me to, to, to another question, to the next question. What would you advise a fellow student or colleague uh, if they want to start using digital tools or media or applications to analyze pre-19th century or pre-20th century uh, documents? Yeah, so the first one is don't be discouraged by the learning curve. Play with the tool a lot. Um, also, if you don't get funds to go visit the archives or have access to the materiality of yeah. the thing, I think more and more we have dig digitization. Yeah, digitization. Projects. So there's a lot that you can uh, analyze through that. So I would never have the funds to go to or get the funds to go to Portugal and find these letters. But because of this uh, PS Postscriptum project, yes. I was able to do that. So uh, make sure you really look f for uh, digi digitization projects and um, digital archives. My other advice is one that Lee Bonds from OSU gave me, is that use a familiar text when you're playing with the tool. Even if it's a lyrics for a song or a poem, poem that you really like, so put that in because then you will understand the results better the first time. Because you already know that song, you already know that poem, so you you can understand what the voyant, for example, is telling you. Oh, I know that this repetition happens a lot. Let me see a visualization of that repetition. Or I know that these words are always together, but let's see how voyant will tell me that. Because then when you apply to a text that you don't know, you understand what Voyant is doing. So. Okay, good. So just to um, end our conversation, I know this is not your the area of your doctoral right. research <laughs> right now. No? Can you just tell us briefly about the topic of your doctoral uh, research, your dissertation? Sure. So what I'm studying is uh, Southern Cone literature in the United States, mostly in the 21st century. So writers from Brazil and Argentina and Uruguay and Chile mostly that came to the U.S. and are writing about their Latino experience. Uh, some authors refer to them as the other Latino or other Latinx. I find the term other a kind of problematic, like who are the main Latinos and why are these the others? But I understand that their experience is different from Central American migrants, for example, or Cuban migrants to the U.S. Uh, research says that they're usually from a higher uh, economic class, uh, so they can, their transnationality is also different because they can go back and visit family. They usually have the visas or green cards or whatever. There's a lot of uh, 
students also from these countries that can um, go back and forth. Whereas, for example, Central Americans, there's a lot of transnationality, but mostly people are deported and they don't really have a choice. So, yeah. Um, yeah. It's, it's, it's interesting. It's another kind of uh, diaspora uh, uh, with other features and characteristics other than the usually thought of diaspora. Exactly. We talk about that. I am teaching a class on other Latino literature now. So it's very interesting to see the students looking at other countries that, because they think about Mexicans and yes. they think about Puerto Ricans cool. and Cubans, and that's it. But showing them Peruvian American literature, for example, and uh, Argentinian American literature, they're like, oh, so it's not all the same thing. Exactly. And there's a lot more to it than, than, than yeah. that. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you very much, Leila, for being here uh, today with us. And I would like to conclude this conversation for thanking again to, to have you here at Michigan State University participating in the symposium. And um, we would like to invite um, our audience to read about your work uh, in the 2019 Global Digital Humanities Symposiums in the web portal. So... Thank you very much. Uh, Michigan State has been a wonderful host, and I'm glad to be here. Awesome. I'm, I'm glad to hear that. So last but not least, the ideas and opinions expressed on this podcast do not reflect those of the College of Arts and Letters, any of our sponsors, or any official entities of Michigan State University. I also want to thank our technical producer, Nadav Pisecreen Apple. Tune in for our next podcast. Thank you.